How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship and ready to focus and study the word. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful for uh, the testimony of Gordon Shearer over the last 35 years as a faithful pastor to his congregation for the example that he gave to many other pastors, the encouragement he was to many pastors, and for the example that he was. Father, we pray for his family, for his uh, those who are close to him, dear to him, and we pray for their strength and sustenance during this time, and that as Kendall prepares for the service next week, that it will be a great opportunity to just rejoice uh, in your grace provision of salvation and to be a tremendous focused testimony of the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that we might be challenged in our understanding of things, that as we compare scripture with scripture, that you would help us to see how uh, what the scriptures do teach about your sovereign will and plan in relation to these important doctrines of calling and predestination and how that relates to the way we think about the things we go through in life. Father, we pray that you would help us to clearly think through these things in the coming weeks. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Put your headset back on. Put it fall. Oh. I thought you were speaking in tongues back there. I thought we were going to have to handle something. Okay, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, we're down to Romans eight twenty-eight and 29, and I've been reading through this chapter again and again in the last uh, couple of weeks, and it's so important to remember context. Uh, the more I study the Scriptures, the more I'm impressed by how much we miss because we don't look at favored verses and promises by really examining how it fits within a context. And one of the areas where there is uh, an egregious amount of proof texting is in the area of, of this, this, these debates over the sovereignty of God versus the free will or volition of man. And it's important not to just grab verses and you read through theologies or uh, other other things written on this topic and they just list a string of verses. And you look at a lot of those verses and then you start looking at the context around there and say, I'm not sure that's that's even talking about what they say it's talking about. It doesn't really apply to this situation. So we need to look at that. And one, one area we need to look at is Romans 8, 28 to 30. This is going to take several weeks because we have to slowly and precisely work our way through uh, these words that are used here. So we'll have a number of of word studies. Hopefully we'll get into the first one tonight on the doctrine of calling. What does it mean when Paul uses the term the called in verse 28 and then again in verse 30? But before we get there, I want to look at context. Now, when we study the scripture, there's really four things that need to be evaluated as you study a passage. The first is is really context. We have to understand a number of things about its context. What kind of literature are we dealing with? Are we dealing with poetry like Proverbs or Psalms? Are we dealing with legal literature such as the Torah and, and Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy? Are we dealing with just historical narrative, which is what we've had a lot of in Acts, Are we dealing with epistolary literature or the letters where Paul is very methodically, logically, precisely building an explanation of important doctrines or teachings of of Scripture? So we have to look. That's one area of context. Another area of context is, is the flow of the author's thinking 
as he writes through the book, can we, it used to drive me nuts when I was in high school and I'd go up to Campanile as a summer worker and we'd be given an assignment every day to read through three or four verses and then we had to write them out in our own words because you really have to think about something to do that and understand you have to learn how to read well and when people don't read well, and of course back in 1967 or 68, when we all we had was a King James Bible, that was extremely difficult. Now when you have um, more up-to-date translations, uh, it's a little easier to do something like that, but that was a hard thing to do with the King James Bible uh, when, when you're in high school. And I wasn't a dumb high school kid. I can't imagine how a lot of people in high school are today because they just don't have the reading comprehension skills. That's why so many of these English translations that have been coming out the last 20 or 30 years seem to have dumbed things down so much is because the whole education system in the country has dumbed down so much that that high school kids today, for the, for the most part, read at such a low level that, of, of comprehension that if you want a high school kid to be able to understand the Bible, you've got to translate it at a third or fourth grade level. And that means taking out a lot of significant English words that have a time-honored tradition uh, of, of theological significance, words like justification, redemption, propitiation. But words like that just don't communicate at all to people who don't have, who are just the products of our public <coughs> education uh, for the most part. So that's why we have to take the time to go through and explain all of these these different uh, uh, concepts. Now, we have to look at the context, which is the literary context. What is said before a passage, after a passage? How does the, how do these verses fit within the flow of what the writer is saying? Because we have to deal with that. And too often, what I find is that people do Rorschach Bible study, and Rorschach tests are those ink blot tests that uh, psychiatrists use. And so they have an ink blot and they put it out in front of you and you have to look at it and what does that make you think of? Well, somebody looks at a passage and they see a word there and, oh, I, I've seen that same word over here. And so they start connecting the dots when the dots shouldn't be connected just because there are similar ideas or words doesn't mean that the context of one passage is talking about the same thing as the context of another passage, so you don't need to connect those dots. And sometimes you'll have passages that are talking about the same thing but not using the same vocabulary, but those passages need to be connected together. And the only way you get there is if you're familiar with uh, with the text of Scripture. So we're going to be doing some of these different things as we go through here, but we need to start with context and really understand the flow of what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 8. Remember, he started off at the beginning talking about the contrast between those who walk according to the flesh and those who are walking according to the Spirit. So you have two different kinds of believers. You have those who are living as if they're unbelievers. They're walking according to the sin nature called the flesh by Paul in many passages, or they're walking in fellowship with God, walking according to the uh, uh, the Spirit, and applying the Word of God daily and consistently in their life. And believers fall into one of those two categories. And so those who are consistently walking according to the flesh are developing a quality of life that is emphasized as living. living. And, um, for example, in Romans 8, 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and of death. And so they're not living a death-like existence as a believer, whereas those who are in the flesh can't please God, verse 8, and they are experiencing a death-like existence. And if you live according to the Spirit, then you'll experience that richness and abundance of life from the Spirit. All of that leads up to the fact that there are two categories of believers that are addressed in those passages. One is referred to as the children of God. That's every believer is a child of God. The instant that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that instant that you believe Jesus Christ's death on the cross 
alone is sufficient for your forgiveness of sins, eternal life, justification. At that instant, you receive new life in Christ. You're a child of God. You're adopted into the royal family of God. But then there's another type of child of God, and that's called a son of God in this passage, using the term weos, just as the son of God in reference to Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says, as many as are led by the Spirit, that is, those who are following the leadership of the Spirit are walking by the Spirit. They are pursuing spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So the term that's used of them is a term that reflects a mature son. They're called sons of God. Now, there's a contrast that's then made in 8.17, which we have uh, covered extensively in the past. It requires a change in punctuation. Remember, there was no punctuation in the original Greek. In fact, in, in the what's called uncial manuscripts, that's spelled U-N-C-I-A-L, in the uncial manuscripts, all the letters were uppercase with no spaces between any of the words, no punctuation, and they didn't divide words like we do by syllable with a hyphen at the end of the line. They just, when if they ran out of space at the end of the line, they just started on the next line. So you have to know the language. Now you think, well, that'd be pretty hard to read. Well, not if that's how you learned to read and that's what you were familiar with. They understood that and they knew the language. It was their, their primary language. So that wasn't something, something difficult. But what happens with us is we come in and we read a verse and we say, how do we punctuate that in English? And the punctuation that we find in most Bibles is to put a, a comma after Christ in verse 17, which makes it look as if there are that that heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, comma, if the comma's there, are synonymous. But the problem with that is that it makes being an heir of God or a joint heir with Christ conditioned upon suffering with him. Now, the gospel doesn't say you can have eternal life if you suffer with Jesus. That's not much of a free gift. Uh, if the gospel is is not by works but by grace, then it's a free gift, and we simply accept the gift. We believe on Jesus. We don't have to do anything. There's no condition. We just believe the gospel. We accept it. We receive the gospel. All these are synonyms for faith in Christ. So if we repunctuate the verse, it reads, if children heirs also, children refer, is, is the word uh, technology refers to every every person who is a believer in Jesus Christ. Every person who's a member of the royal family of God. If children heirs also, heirs of God, comma, that's the first category, that's every child in the family is an heir of God. And secondly, fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ on the condition, that's expressed by the if clause, on the condition that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Suffering entails uh, spiritual growth and spiritual advance on the basis of obedience. And whenever we're obedient, we are going to learn things um, and, and through suffering. In Hebrews 2, verse 10, we read, For it was fitting for him... That's talking about God the Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that is, believers in Jesus Christ, in bringing us to glory to make the captain of their salvation, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, mature or perfect through suffering. So Jesus Christ had to grow to maturity, learning in his humanity through the things that he suffered, just living in and amongst uh, Christians, I mean, living in, in and amongst unbelievers in the midst of Satan's uh, cosmic system. So we're going to go through through suffering. Now, as soon as Paul said that in verse 17, notice I think the editors are right. There's a paragraph shift that occurs at verse 18, slightly different focus, because from verse 18 down through the end of the chapter, the focal point is helping us understand some things about suffering with Christ. So this topic, this idea of suffering with Christ becomes the umbrella concept from verse 18 down through 
uh, verse 39. Once you understand that, un- trying to understand the concepts that are here make a little more sense. Once we get the grip on the fact that this is the umbrella term here is we're dealing with understanding the importance of suffering in the life of the believer, that this is part of God's plan and purpose, and this is how he has determined that we will be brought to maturity and in preparation for a future where we rule and reign with Christ. Let me show you how how that does. You can just trace this, circle some of these key words as we go through here, but I want to trace this broad idea for you before we start getting down into the details of Romans 8.28. Because if you don't understand how the particulars, how the details orient to the to, to the to the general flow of thought, then we can easily get off track. We have to understand where Paul's taking us. It's, it's like looking at a map. Now, I know some people are directionally challenged, and as soon as I talk about a map, th- their their brain goes blank, just like mine does when people start talking about numbers. But you look at a map, it gives you the overview. You look at the route you're going to take, and then all the different towns and cities you go through along the way begin to make sense in terms of how they're strung together on the route from point A to point B. That's what happens in the text. We're getting the overview so the details make sense only as how they relate to that that overview. So verse 18 starts with the word for. Now, most of the time in the English text, when we see a verse start with the word for, it's a translation of the Greek word gar, which always introduces an explanation. So Paul just made this statement, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him, he then says, let me explain. I consider. So he's explaining something. Well, not only does verse 18 begin with four, but it begin, it also brings in the idea of suffering. So he's expanding on our understanding of why we suffer and helping us understand that role in terms of our future glorification with Christ. Verse 19 begins with what? Circle that word. For a further development of the explanation. Verse 20 begins. For, see, in these two verses, we introduce the creation of God and how the creation itself even uh, groans under the curse of sin. That's explained in verse 22. So verse 18 has a four, verse 19 has a four, 20 and 21 is one sentence introducing uh, uh, your third explanation. And then verse 22 introduces the fourth four uh, explanation, and uh, verse 23 explains or develops the idea from verse 22, and then verse 24 begins with a four. But something happens in the flow of thought. When we get down to verse 24, Paul says, now we were saved with this hope. We were saved with this hope. So now he's talking about how uh, this hope, our confident future expectation is related to how we can handle suffering right now because we understand where we're headed. Hope has to do with a future certainty, a, fu- a confidence of a fu- future um, situation. So we're saved with this hope, this confident expectation, but and then he explains a little bit about hope in the rest of the verse. And then verse 25 also talks about hope. But if we hope for what we do not, he's just explaining more about hope there. And then in verse 26, he says, likewise. Now, I didn't hit this last time. It didn't, I didn't catch this until uh, this week. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. Now, this word likewise means in the same way or in a similar manner. In a similar manner to what? Well, the only thing that we have in the immediate context is the hope. So the hope is one way in which we have, is a problem-solving device. It's a way to solve the problem of adversity. We're in adversity. How do we handle it? We handle it because of that confident expectation. It's that personal sense of our eternal destiny. We know that God has a destiny where he's taking us, and that's our, related to our confident expectation, 
And so we know God is doing something in our life, even if we have to go through suffering or adversity right now. God, it, it has, it serves a purpose and has a purpose. And then he says, in the same way, the Spirit helps our weakness. Well, hope helped our weakness. That's what he's implying there. Hope as a, as a tool and as a technique for handling adversity strengthened us in the weakness of having to deal with adversity. Weakness was a term that James used a lot in dealing with uh, the same thing, the facing adversity and uh, trials and testing. So likewise, or in the same way as hope helps us, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For, and then he explains how the Spirit helps, because the Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know exactly how to pray for circumstances and situations. The Holy Spirit acts as sort of a divine translator in articulating our prayers the way they ought to be. That, As I pointed out when we studied this the last time, that doesn't excuse us in praying in a sloppy manner, in an imprecise manner, or in a generalized manner. You don't find any writer of Scripture from David in the Psalms or Moses in the Psalms, for that matter, uh, Moses back in the Pentateuch, or all the way up through Jesus' prayers or any of the Apostle Paul's or Peter's prayers, you don't find any of them just bailing out in some sort of generalized prayer saying, well, Lord, I don't know what to pray for, so the Holy Spirit will do it. Amen. You know, they craft their prayers. They articulate them to the best of their ability, but they know that ultimately they don't comprehend all there is that needs to be comprehended, and the Holy Spirit is going to... Uh, handle the situation, but that doesn't relieve them of their responsibility. So verse 26 is talking about still carrying on the idea of handling adversity. Now we come to verse 28, and verse 28 says, and we know that all things work together for good. What are the all things in context? It's not every detail in life necessarily, it's talking about this suffering, the adversity that's been the topic since verse 17. How to handle the suffering, the adversity that we face in life as we are pursuing spiritual growth, spiritual maturity with the end game of being a joint heir with Christ uh, in, in order to be glorified with him. So Romans 8.28 fits within this uh, within this flow, and we see that Paul shifts his the focus now to a general principle that is known to his audience. He says, and we know. He includes the audience uh, with himself, and this is a principle that they understood, and he is appealing to the concept of God's sovereign plan. And it's a plan of such a scope that God is able to orchestrate all of the details and elements of history, specifically the elements of adversity in the life of a believer, in order to bring about uh, maturity and glorification in the life of the believer so that he can rule and reign with Christ in the kingdom in the future. Now, the next thing we should notice is at the end of verse 30. At the end of verse 30, we read, in all these terms we have to take apart and understand, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he justified, and whom he justified, these he what? He glorified. Now, when was the last time we saw that word? We saw that back in verse 17. That joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified with him. So you see, contextually, we're dealing with this issue of taking the believer through suffering to this aspect of glorification with Christ as a joint heir with Christ. So his focus is not, although the principles that we see here are in one sense true for every believer, he's not dealing with what's true for every believer. Paul has, a, and John does this in the epistle of John, to, to not focus on yet the, the lowest common denominator and say, yeah, you're a failure believer, you're, not, you're, you're unfaithful, you're not walking, this is what you get. 
he, he assumes that if you're a believer, you're going to do what you ought to do, which is pursue maturity. And so he focuses on the high road, and he's not dealing with the exceptions of the losers. It's true for them, but it's what really encourages the believer who's pursuing spiritual maturity. The, the person who's not handling spiritual maturity just gets mired in his adversity and ends up in a lot of self-induced misery as well. But Paul is talking about how the, mat- the maturing focused believer uh, is aided by understanding God's sovereign plan. The point I'm making here is we have to understand Romans 8, 28 to 30 in light of the fact that Paul is encouraging us in terms of how we look at the adversity in our life as we're pursuing spiritual maturity. Then look down a few more verses to Romans 8, 35 through 37. This is in the midst of a whole series of rhetorical questions that Paul asks. We'll get into all of that when we get there. But look at verse 35. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? In other words, does any of this indicate that God doesn't love us anymore? You're going through difficult times. You're going through hard times. You're going through persecution. You're going through uh, imprisonment. Uh, today I was looking at something on the maritime uh, prison in um, in Rome, and this was basically a hole in the ground. And in, in, in the way they treated prisoners in Rome was was they knew they were going to die, so they didn't really care about them. They just stuck them down, dropped them down inside this dungeon, and there was no sanitation. Uh, there was nothing down there. They were just left there, and they just dropped food down there for them. I mean, it was just an absolutely horrid uh, existence. And you can certainly see why uh, when people are going through extremely difficult times and they ask the question, well, does God love me anymore? Why does God take me through this? God must not, God must hate me to take me through all of this. And so Paul is answering that kind of a question here. He says, can anything separate us from the love of Christ? We're going, no matter how horrible it might get, uh, the tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. And then in verse 36, he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, for your sake, that's related to God, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Our lives are for him to use however he deems necessary. And then Paul says in verse 37, yet in all these things, what are these things here? Persecutions, uh, uh, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now that word more than conquerors, uh, we could, it's huper nikao. It's a compound word in, in the Greek. Nikao is the verb form for someone who overcomes. The noun form is Nike, where we get our word, the brand for Nike, for the, for the conqueror, the victor in the races. This is a, the noun is a word that's used in, um, or the, uh, the verb is used for the participles for the, for the overcomer in Revelation 2 and 3. The overcomer, this is the Christian who's really pursuing spiritual victory in his life through through spiritual maturity. And this is a hooper, so it's a- adding something to it. We would, uh, you know, I'm tempted to translate this with a little German. This is the uber conqueror. You know, this is the uber victor. This is the uber mature, mature believer who is pushing on. So uh, the, the uber mature one, that's what he's focusing on. This takes us right back to the concept that he's talking about, that he introduced in verse 17, which is to be a joint heir with Christ. We need to push on to be a co-heir with Christ, and that's done by how we handle suffering. So Romans 8.28 fits right in this context. It is a ver- introdu- introducing a thought on how we are to think about the suffering, the adversity that's going on in our life. So that sets up the context. Now, let's look at this verse because this is a verse that is filled with some 
difficulties. And I'm not just talking about understanding what it says. We have to first know what it says. Uh, Romans 8.28 starts off, and we know the top verse is the New King James. The second verse is from the New American Standard. The top verse reads, and we know that all things work together for good. So the main verb is sunerge, meaning work together. But the way it's translated, you have the, the Greek word for all things can be nominative, same form is also for the accusative. So it appears in that text that all things is the subject of a, in a sort of a passive construction, all things impersonalized or depersonalized construction. All things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. But it's a little different in verse 28 in the New American Standard, in NIV, and about five other translations. Those read, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, the issue here is that we have a textual difference between verse 28 I mean, between two basic manuscript groups. Now, this is what it looks like on the bottom of a Greek New Testament. Now, there's probably none of you can really read that, so I'll explain it to you. What that tells us is right up here where we have this Greek word that's hatheos, or God, that that's found in these uh, five manuscripts here. A papyrus that's numbered 46, uh, a, which is uh, Codex Alexandrinus. B is the abbreviation for Ephraim of Syria. Uh, 81 is is another manuscript. And the uh, Sahara, I believe, which is an older, uh, 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 a more recent uh, translation. So the, the biggies are A and B. And uh, A and B are 3rd to 4th century manuscripts. And so there's some people who follow the principle, if it's older, it's, it's accurate, which is a fallacious principle, because it can be the copy of an even older wrong document. Uh, and so that it's not even an issue between the critical text and the majority text at this point. And then this line here tells us what, what manuscripts support the reading in the text, which leaves God out. And that's Sinaiticus, which was the probably one of the oldest and best older manuscripts found um, uh, on Mount Sinai at, at St. Catherine's uh, Monastery by Tischendorf. And then these next four represent other uh, uncials or capital letter, older capital letter uh, Greek manuscripts, and then some other minor manuscripts. And this uh, funky-looking M here stands for the majority text or the majority of manuscripts that come out of the area of Greece and, and modern Turkey. And then these others stand for some other uh, different translations and, and uh, writers. So uh, regarding all of this, you see that there's only really two basic strong manuscripts that support this reading, and there's a vast number that leave God out. Bruce Metzger, who before he died was considered the greatest, one of the top two or three great textual critics, even though he didn't hold to a majority text, he was still recognized as one of the greatest uh, scholars on textual criticism, wrote quite a bit and was one of the major editors of the critical text that we have, the Greek text that, that, that we use. Um, and he also published a commentary back in the 80s uh, explaining why they chose the editors chose certain readings over other readings, and you can catch the gist of what he said here. He said, um, although the reading that has God in it, God God worked all things together for good, is both ancient and noteworthy. He says a majority of the committee deemed it too narrowly supported. In other words, it's only in a few manuscripts. It doesn't have enough uh, support from different geographical regions, as well as uh, just the number of manuscripts. It's too narrowly supported to be admitted into the text, particularly in view of the diversified support for the shorter reading. And so then he lists all the different uh, manuscripts that have the shorter reading. 
He then goes on to say, since sunerge, or that is working, works together, may be taken to imply a personal subject, God, uh, seems to have been a natural explanation made by an Alexandrian editor. The bottom line is he's saying a shorter reading is always um, to be preferred because the tendency of scribes was to add uh, something in order to enhance the, the explanation. It's implied that God is the one working all things together for good, but that's not what the text says. And I think that, it, that the reality is that even among the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the critical text, usually the debate in textual criticisms between the critical text view and the majority text view, uh, this isn't even a majority text, critical text view. It's that there's just little support for this in, in the manuscript. And so that's not really, uh, that's a reading that's only accepted in a couple of English translations, and the vast majority don't accept that because the manuscript evidence is just too weak. And so it's, it's implied in the text that, um, um, that God is the one who's working, but it doesn't state that. We know that all things work together for, for the good to those who love God. Now, this raises the next question, and that is, who is it that love God? And there's two ways to look at this, and this is not an easy, this is a really tough thing to try to resolve. Uh, there are, on the, the first view, is that this passage only relates to that class of Christians who are obedient to God and are advancing spiritually. The second view is that this passage refers to all believers, whether they're growing or not, faithful or not, or walking by the Spirit or not. And let me give you the, the rationale behind each, each view. The, the first view... That is, that the passage only relates to that class of Christians that is obedient and walking with the Lord, is that this is how the phrase loving God uh, is used in many passages. Not everybody who is a believer, either in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, is a lover of God. How does the scripture say we demonstrate our love for God? By being obedient. The one who loves God keeps his commandments. So not everyone who is a believer keeps his, keeps his commandments. So view one uh, emphasizes that aspect. For example, in Exodus 20, verse 6, uh, showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Those are viewed as going together. Loving him means you keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 30, verse 20 states that you may love the Lord your God and that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him, for he is your life, etc., etc. Love and obedience go together. If you say, oh, I love God, and you're not walking with the Lord, you're not obedient, you don't love God. You just have a lot of warm fuzzies about what you think is God, but you don't love God. Jesus says the same kind of thing in the New Testament. John fourteen fifteen. he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John fourteen twenty one. he who has my commandments and keeps them... It is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Again, if you love God, you're going to keep his commandments. John 15:10. if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Abiding in God's love is another way of talking about fellowship. So again, if it's obedience. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. First uh, John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, and here it's a, an objective genitive, meaning this is uh, the love for God or toward God, that we keep his commandments. And so how do you know if you have love for God? You keep his commandments. So all of that is related to keeping his commandments. So that, the first view in, would, would say, okay, he's not, this doesn't apply to every believer, it only applies to those who love God, those who are pursuing spiritual maturity. The second view comes along and says, no, there's, there's the, the concept of those who love God is defined clearly in context. Look at what it says. All things work together for God to those who love God. 
Those who love God are then explained as those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, who are those who are called according to his purpose? Well, that's explained in verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Okay, how, how many people did he foreknow? Let's just say five billion. He predestined all of that five billion to be conformed to the image of his son. Any more? Any less? So that's the same number. He goes on in verse 30 to say, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Did he lose any or gain any? He doesn't lose or gain any. So the ones whom he foreknew, that same exact number, no more, no less, are predestined. Those, that same number, no more, no less, these he also called. That same number, no more, no less, are justified. So that means that all those who are saved, who get eternal life, who are justified, are among those who, who are that, that set, fixed group who are foreknown, and that set, fixed group, same set, fixed group that are predestined. And these he also called, uh, whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. So according to the explanation in verse uh, 30, those who are called according to his purpose are everyone that's justified and everyone that's glorified. Doesn't lose it. it it's not admitting of any subset of faithful believers versus uh, faithful believers. It doesn't make that division at all. So, so the definition of who are the called applies to every believer. Now, how do we resolve this? Well, I think we resolve it by simply saying that Paul isn't, uh, it, it, this is true for every believer, but Paul is simply applying it and addressing it to those who are pursuing spiritual maturity. It's true for every believer in one sense, but Paul, like John does, when John talks in 1 John 5 about the, the one who is born again doesn't sin, he's not using the term the one who is born again as an exact equivalent of every person who is regenerated no longer sins. Because if that's true, none of us are saved. We might as well go home. He's talking about those who are regenerate, those who are begotten of God, those who are living as family members. He's addressing the group that is pursuing spiritual maturity. And that's what you have with Paul also. He addresses those who are going somewhere. He's not talking about those who are not going anywhere. He is encouraging in the context those who are pursuing spiritual uh, maturity and spiritual growth. He's not uh, addressing those who have just decided to be unfaithful and live in carnality and walk according to the flesh. Even though the principle applies to every believer, it is only a real a reality to those who are uh, pursuing spiritual maturity because it is what strengthens and encourages them as they face adversity. Okay, now that brings us to the big term that's right in the middle of this verse and is defined and is used again in verse 30, and that is the word, the called. And this is the beginning of where we're going to have to go through each of these concepts, calling, predestination, uh, we spent a lot of time on justification that doesn't need as much um, and also glorification in order to, to uh, pull this out. So let's t talk about some concepts related to the term calling. Now, this is just a basic term in Greek. It's the Greek word is kaleo, K-E-L-E-O, kaleo, and it simply refers uh, in a generic sense to, we could compare it to an invitation to something. Uh, just as we use the, use our word call with a broad range of meaning, the word uh, the Greek word kaleo has a broad range of meaning. But when it comes to theology, it is used to refer to the overall process, the whole process whereby an unjustified sinner comes to understand the plan of salvation and God's invitation to them to receive salvation in Christ. Okay, it's a broad term. It refers to that whole process 
from the beginning of understanding of the plan of salvation, God's invitation to every human being to accept that salvation, and ultimately those who have accepted and received that salvation. So it's a, it's a broad term. It can be uh, used as a generically as an invitation, and then it's used in a little more precise way. Now, second point I want to say about this is that in the development of theology, it's come to pack on uh, uh, a lot of baggage. It's got a lot of additional meanings that have been stuck on this. In the stream of Augustinianism, which I mentioned this on Tuesday night, which preceded Calvinism, the term became identified with a theological concept called irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Let me. I've got a little chart here, timeline I put together, and this may help you sort of uh, conceptualize some of the things I talked about the other night. Uh, I'll go to it right here. Okay, on the one hand, we have, in, in both in terms of philosophy and in terms of theology, we have people who believe man is completely and totally free, that there's absolutely nothing to hinder uh, human will, uh, human freedom, and man is free just like Adam was created free and can make any decision, whatever. There's no external influence on him whatsoever. On the other extreme, you have those who believe that man is totally determined by God or by nature or by chemical makeup or something like that, and so there's no free will whatsoever. Everything's programmed into your computer, into your DNA, and you do what you do because it's all... Uh, it's all programmed. And that goes by the name of fatalism or determinism. And it's impersonal. So on the left side, those who believe man is absolutely free like Adam believe in an absolute free will. On the other extreme, we have those who have an absolute determinism or an impersonal fatalism. Now, I inserted this line. I didn't talk about these guys the other night because they're not part of our tradition. These were Roman Catholics in the Middle Ages. There was Banez and Suarez. Banez, I believe, was a Franciscan, and Suarez was a Dominican. And they, within Roman Catholic thought in the Middle Ages, they had their, this was their big debate between uh, free will and uh, and a more, uh, what we would call Calvinism, a more uh, deterministic view, and those were the representatives uh, in, in Roman Catholic tradition. After the, the first person to use the term irresistible grace was, was Augustine, and Augustine lived in the late 300s, early 400s, and he used this term that, that if God elected some and chose who would be saved and who would not be saved, then what brings those who were the elect to salvation is that God gives them grace, but they can't resist it. So we use the term irresistible, uh, irresistible grace. And that became a, 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 uh, an extremely um, debated doctrine for the next hundred years until five, about 525 you had a council uh, that met in uh, an Orange, the Synod of Orange in 8529 met, and they left out irresistible grace from their from the Roman Catholic doctrine of um, uh, of uh, salvation. And so uh, Pelagius was um, Augustine's uh, great um, the the uh, excuse me the British. A priest who believed that everything was free, that was his great opponent. And so Pelagianism was declared a heresy, but then you had the Augustinian viewpoint, which is a very strong precursor to Calvinism. But at the Synod of Orange, the Roman Catholic Church basically adopted a view of semi-Augustinianism. This gets real confusing. You don't, you're not going to get a test on this or anything, but this at least gives you an idea. Then in the Middle Ages, there was also another immediate view called semi-Pelagianism, and it gets really weird, but there's a lot of debates that went on long before the Protestant Reformation. And that's really the thing that I want you to take away from this little historical thing, is that these ideas have been debated 
over and over and over again, long before uh, Christianity. I mean, they, they were debated among the Greek uh, philosophers, and a lot of that those Greek ideas were brought into the church, which affected how they interpreted Scripture. And I don't want to get in, and, and even today, as I pointed out the other night, a lot of the books that are written on free will and the sovereignty of God have a lot of philosophy in them, and they'll just you know, burn your brain cells. So this just gives you kind of a little historical background, and this all leads up to the Protestant Reformation, because by the time of the Protestant Reformation, semi-Pelagianism, which is emphasizing a really heretical view of free will, dominates, and Pelagianism as well, dominates the Roman Catholic Church. So when you have the Protestant Reformation, it's spearheaded by a guy named Martin Luther, who nails the 95 debate points or theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg, the local uh, Facebook page, and calls for a debate over these uh, 95 points that he thinks express all the abuses in the Roman Catholic Church. But Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. He was in an order, the order of Augustine, and he's been reading Augustine, and he wants to go back get away from this loosey-goosey, you-can-lose-your-salvation-work-your-way-to-heaven kind of uh, understanding of the gospel that was dominating the Roman Catholic Church, and he wanted to go back to uh, Augustinianism. And Augustinianism at least tried to emphasize grace, even though it was in this kind of deterministic framework. And, and that was the same influence that was on John Calvin. So that helps us understand where they are, why they thought the way they did historically. They're not the kind of textual uh, biblicists that we are. They thought in terms of theology and philosophy much more than they did in terms of the biblical text. And so this leads them in some wrong directions, but they're pulling away from the tradition of the Roman Catholic viewpoint, and they're trying to get back to the text. Now, it takes about 100 years before people start getting as serious about the text as they should, but... That's part of that growth process. Now, having said all of that, by the time you get past Calvin into the end of the uh, uh, 1500s, there develops among uh, a lot of controversy over these issues related to free will and sovereignty between Calvinists. And there was a theology professor by the name of Jacob Arminius who's teaching in Holland and his followers, he dies in 1609, and his followers put together and summarize five basic points that they want to emphasize on um, how they view man's condition and salvation. And we only have a few minutes left. I, I might put those up later on, but they get kind of technical, so I'm not. But in answer to their five points, the Calvinists came up with what's called, those were called the Remonstrants. And the Calvinists came up with what they called the counter-remonstrance, which we call today the five points of Calvinism, and that's indicated by this acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. And T stands for total inability, that man is, because of sin, he's not capable of doing anything not only to please God, but he can't even exercise positive volition towards God without a work of grace changing him. The U stands for unconditional election, which means that God chooses who will be saved and who won't be saved, and that's really what determines whether you're saved or not. It has nothing to do with your volition, your choice, your belief in Christ. You can only believe in Christ if God chose you ahead of time. The L stands for limited atonement. If if God's only going to save a few people, then Christ only died for them. Why waste his blood? And that's what they'll say. If, you, if, Christ, didn't, if Christ died for the unsaved, he spilled his blood on Calvary. That's, that's how they'll argue that. Uh, the I stands for irresistible grace. And this is the idea that, that for the elect to come to Christ, God has to irresistibly draw them. And he will only draw those who are elect. He won't draw others. Now, this is also called effectual calling. 
And then the P stands for the perseverance of the saints on the good side. There are those who will take perseverance of the saints as only meaning eternal security, that Christ perseveres in keeping the saints saved. But for many, especially today in the last um, uh, 100 years or so, and especially the last 50 years, the emphasis has been more on if the believer or the professing believer doesn't persevere or continue in his faith, then he wasn't truly saved to begin with. It's not that he loses his salvation, but he wasn't truly saved to begin with. And that is uh, that form of theology is what we refer to as lordship salvation or lordship theology. Now, let me put a couple of quotes up here just to give you a little flavor of what, what is said out there. Now, this long quote up here comes from a uh, writing by Miller Erickson, who wrote a three-volume, now it all comes out in one volume, Systematic Theology, that has superseded Chafer and Burkhoff and others at Dallas Seminary and at most uh, seminaries today, except for Chafer Seminary. And he's describing Calvinism here. He says, we've already seen several characteristics of election as viewed by Calvinists. One is that election is an expression of God's sovereign will or good pleasure. It's not based on any merit in the one elected, nor on foreseeing that the individual will believe. Now, just as a side point, in Calvinism, belief is meritorious. They believe that faith is given to you and that by God, and that faith has merit. So we would disagree strongly with that. Um, he goes on to say, it is the cause, that is election, is the cause, not the result of faith. That's the Calvinist view. Second, he says, election is efficacious. Those whom God has chosen will most certainly come to faith in him, and for that matter will persevere in that faith to the end. All of the elect will certainly be saved. Third, he says, election is from all eternity. It is not a decision made at some point in time when the individual is already existent. It is what God has always purposed to do. See, that's fatalism. It doesn't matter what you believe. God already made the decision for you. That is a form of fatalism or determinism. Fourth, he goes on to say, election is unconditional, doesn't depend on humans performing a specific action or meeting certain conditions, i.e. faith or terms of God. There are some hyper-Calvinists who believe that, that if God wants you to be saved, you'll be saved whether you hear the gospel or not. Then he goes on to say, um, it is not that God wills to save people if they do certain things. He simply wills to save them and brings it about. Finally, he says, election is immutable. God does not change his mind. Election is from all eternity and out of God's infinite mercy. He has no reason or occasion to change his mind. That's his description of Calvinism. Then he goes on in his conclusion on dealing with the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. He says, salvation consists of three steps, effectual calling. Now, I put this word in here because most often the phrase you see in Calvinist writings is irresistible grace. But effectual grace or effectual calling is another Calvinistic synonym for irresistible grace. And it is not to be defined as God the Holy Spirit making a person's faith effective for salvation. That is redefining a classic historical Calvinist term. And I've, run, I've had 20 or 30 guys go through seminary. It's taken me a year and a half to beat that wrong definition out of their heads because every time they read it in some Calvinist, they think, oh, this guy's right. No, effectual calling is a Calvinist synonym for irresistible grace, and you can't ever redefine it because you have to let them use their term their way. Now, we have the word calling used several ways in the Old Testament, and it simply refers to a commissioning. For example, Isaiah 42, 6, as God talks to the servant, he says, I, the Lord, have called you or commissioned you in righteousness. Isaiah 43, 1, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name. It relates to his commissioning of Israel. 
Isaiah 45, 3, the same, same kind of thing. I'm the Lord who called you by your name. I commissioned you and gave you a purpose and a focus. Same thing in Isaiah 45, 4. And all of this to lead up to the fact that this is the same way Paul uses the term called when he says, I, Paul, called an apostle. He's talking about it as a specific commission from God to be a, an apostle. But there is a commissioning at salvation for every believer, and this is how the word calling is used. We'll come back and hit this definitely more next time, but I wanted to at least get to this point. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. That's the commissioning. That is the task that I set before you. I walk, that you are to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Every believer has this calling. And this really refers to the end process of what began with the initial external invitation, external call, the external invitation of the gospel when we first heard it, all the way up to when we believe in Christ. Those who've gone through that process are referred to as the called because they've gone through that process. Now, I want to come back, and I skipped over a lot of stuff in the middle of this to get the overall view down, and then next time we'll come back and... uh, I'll deal with some questions and some other things there, but we're out of time already. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to begin to work our way through them to try to understand uh, these concepts that about which there's so much debate that we can clearly think through how you have revealed yourself and your plan to us in your word. And we pray that you'd help us think these things through and, and uh, patiently study through all the things that are taught in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.